0: Good afternoon, and welcome to Me Too and the federal judiciary. I want to thank the law school staff for uh, their work in putting this event on, and the Feminist Legal Forum for the invitation and for their work in this event, as well as their work uh, confronting sexism sexism in the legal profession and advancing feminist discussion, both at the law school and beyond. Uh, It is no surprise to anyone uh, for me to say we are in the midst of a series of intense and critical interlocking discussions about the pervasiveness of sexual harassment on a state level, and a national level, and a global level, in politics, in media, as well as in the legal sphere. Uh, we are doing this in one-on-one conversations. We're doing this through major marches and protests on a national level. Uh, and we're doing this at uh, forums in between, like this one, uh, where we have a chance to have uh, take part in this ongoing conversation. As many of you know, the Me Too movement originated uh, as a brainchild of activist Tarana Burke. uh, And that movement has been really shifting the national consciousness and national conversation about uh, sexual harassment, its survivors, and the sex discrimination and intersectionalities of race, class, sexuality, and gender that so often underlie and accompany sexual harassment. The federal judiciary, as part of both our political culture and our professional culture, uh, has itself come under scrutiny uh, and we're here to discuss that scrutiny, where Me Too in the judiciary shares commonalities with Me Too elsewhere, where it diverges, how to talk about it, what has been done about it, and what remains to be done. I'm so glad that UVA Law School is hosting this panel, and I'm so glad that you are all here. Uh, and I am delighted and honored to introduce uh, our esteemed panelists who will share their expertise uh, with us. We have a truly all-star cast for you today. Our moderator really needs no introduction to most of you, uh, but I will provide a brief one. Uh, she is uh, Ann Coughlin the Lewis F. Powell Jr. Professor of Law here at the University of Virginia Law School. Uh, Lewis F. Powell is the justice for whom uh, she clerked. Uh, So she has personal experience in the federal judiciary, not only at the Supreme Court, but at the Second Circuit, uh, where she clerked for John O. Newman uh, on the Court of Appeals. I will say just briefly uh, that Anne was the driving force, uh, or a driving force, behind uh, this event, and behind so many of the important conversations that we have at the law school, both among students and among faculty, and bringing students and faculty together. Uh, As a scholar, Anne has spent much of her career exploring the intersections among criminal law, criminal procedure, and feminist theory. She has written and researched extensively about rape law, gender, and criminal investigation. And she has previously served as co-chair of the National Association of Women and Lawyers, Amicus, and Supreme Court nominees committees. In other words, there is no one better to lead our conversation today than Anne Coughlin. We are joined next by Judge Pamela Harris of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Pam graduated from uh, Yale University uh, and returned there to get her JD, JD degree. She went on to clerk for Judge Harry Edwards of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and then Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens. She has had a varied and very distinguished career in the academy, the private sector, and government, all at the highest levels, all of which has garnered praise from everyone she has ever worked with, so far as I can tell, and all quarters more generally. Uh, In the academy, she has taught at the University of Pennsylvania full-time, where she won the Harvey Levin Memorial Teaching Award, uh, as well as in various roles at Harvard and Georgetown Law Schools, including leading Supreme Court and appellate advocacy clinics at each institution. Her roles in government have included serving as attorney advisor for the U.S. Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel, and later as principal deputy assistant attorney general Uh, at the Department of Justice in the Office of Legal Policy. In the private sector, Pam started her career as an associate at Shea & Gardner, now Goodwin Proctor, uh, and later spent 10 years at the law firm of O'Melveny & Myers where she was named partner in 2005. There, she specialized in Supreme Court and appellate litigation and appeared in nearly 100 federal appellate cases. Those were the cases she appeared in before she started judging them <laughs> uh, as an advocate. She also led a cooperative effort between El Melviny and the Maryland De- uh, Defender's Office to provide pro bono legal services. Uh, she is unbelievably generous with her time, her insight, and her energy, well beyond her day job, uh, serving on the board of directors for the American Constitution Society and the Constitutional Accountability Center. And in 2014, President Obama nominated Pam to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. She was confirmed quite quickly thereafter. When he nominated her, he noted not quite quickly. It didn't feel it didn't quickly. Seem fast. Okay, all right. Uh, I think comparatively speaking. Okay, uh, but I understand it probably didn't seem fast. Uh, President Obama noted uh, the unwavering integrity and outstanding commitment to public service that Pam has shown throughout her career, and others noted that she is a quick study, careful listener, and acute judge of legal arguments. She knows the value of clarity, candor, vigor, and responsiveness. One minute in her presence confirms all of that as our students have witnessed when she's come to judge our moot court, taught a J-term course here last month, uh, and all uh, those who were at the ACS uh, convention this past weekend where she served on a panel would also know. It has been such a privilege to get to know her over that period of time. All of that is true, and I would add to it, she is also human and humane, funny, and just a supremely fabulous person. So we are very fortunate to have Pam here with us today last but never least is Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia is also a Yale graduate, uh, but she got her uh, JD at Stanford Law School. And after Stanford, she went on to clerk for Chief Judge Proctor Hug of the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. And then she practiced family law in Reno, Nevada. Uh, so I will pause here to note, every one of our panelists has clerked uh, at, uh, at on a federal court, so they have personal experience there, uh, as well as other kinds of experience, though Dahlia is the only one who did divorce law in the state of Nevada. Uh, She first joined uh, Slate in 1999, and today uh, she is senior editor and legal correspondent. Her astute, thought-provoking, one might say provocative, and often wickedly funny legal analysis of the Supreme Court uh, has won her numerous awards, and I will only mention a few here. She has twice received of the Online News Association Award for online commentary. She's earned the 2013 National Magazine Award. She was the 2017 recipient of the Virginia Bar Association's Excellence in Legal Journing, uh, in Legal Journalism journey. Uh, she is the first online journalist who was invited to serve on the steering committee for the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. And she has, in fact, been the first online journalist to receive uh, a number of accolades uh, that were usually uh, reserved for those uh, print journalists. Uh, and last year, Dahlia and I had the pleasure of being inducted together into the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Her articles have appeared not only on Slate, but in the New York Times, The Washington Post, The New Yorker, The New Republic, L. NPR, and Newsweek, where she was a Guest columnist for several years, among others. She makes guest appearances on CNN, ABC, The Rachel Maddow Show, and she is the author, uh, the co author of two books, I Will Sing Life and Me versus Everybody Absurd Contracts for an Ideal, uh, for an Absurd World, which is a very Dahlia title. Uh, since 2014, Dahlia has hosted Amicus, a hit legal podcast centered on Supreme Court coverage, but going well beyond that. Uh, and in fact, she interviewed UVA's own Professor Dahlia Laycock uh, in her debut Amicus episode in 2014 who had recently argued the case of Holt v. Hobbes in the Supreme Court. And just a few weeks ago she interviewed Vice Dean Kendrick and me and even allowed us to advertise our own forthcoming podcast, Common Law. Dahlia was a long-time resident of Charlottesville and has long been a friend uh, to UVA Law School and to me personally. Uh, Many of you know she uh, delivered a keynote address at the National ACS Convention uh, over the weekend. She has taught here previously. She has attended and served on many, many uh, panels uh, and other uh, student interactions here, as well as teaching at the University of Georgia and Hebrew University Law School in Jerusalem. It is my pleasure to welcome her back. And as I turn uh, the, the program over to and uh, Ann Coughlin, please join me in recognizing each of these three outstanding women.
1: So thanks, Risa, for that incredibly warm and generous introduction. I know I speak for both Dahlia and Pam um, when I say thanks for that. It was really amazing. Um, so we're really pleased to be able to bring this program to you today, and I want to give special thanks to Feminist Legal Forum for being stalwart collaborators um, uh, across a whole range of issues. But but this is one that we thought was an important conversation to have at this time, as the dean mentioned. Um, there's a ton of stuff in the news these days about sexual harassment in a whole array of important employment contexts, and certainly uh, clerking is one of those important contexts, Um, only one of them that we're thinking about today. Um, When I went to law school, I guess I just drank the Kool-Aid. It was received wisdom that clerking was the golden ring. That was the thing that you were supposed to do. You were to aspire to get that job, and particularly a job in the federal courts. And so I very quickly caught on to the fact that this was just the thing to do. And there was very little discussion about that received wisdom. Very little information that was available, almost no conversations that took place about why it was that clerking was such a great job, for example, um, about the conditions that were necessary for clerking to be a valuable experience uh, for the law clerk as well as for judges, and then about what kinds of institutional protections we might want to put in place to protect law students and young lawyers who are going into these employment spaces. and. Over the years, I've had many, many conversations with my own students in which there are times when I've really repeated this received wisdom. I've just said to students, it's a no-brainer. This is a job you really want to have, and of course, As time went by, I was able to reflect on the fact that both of my clerkships were wonderful experiences because my employers, the judges, were absolutely fabulous people. They were not only brilliant and hardworking, but they were decent and and kind to us in professional ways. So I've been thinking about these issues for a long time. Um, But to be more blunt about it, it was when the allegations surfaced against Judge Kaczynski, I think it was in 2017, a group of law students came to my office, female law students, uh, sat down and said, did you know these things? Were you, was anyone at the law school aware that these kinds of allegations were out there? And at that moment, I realized that it was time to do some more powerful soul searching, not just on my own behalf, but on behalf of the law school as well. Then, of course, last fall, we uh, went through the Supreme Court nomination battle, which raised still more issues about how to approach allegations of this kind. So I was absolutely delighted to be able to turn to these two great, fabulous friends of the law school, call them out of the blue, and say, please Please, 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 will you come down and talk about this subject, which is so important, and yet difficult to, to, to discuss. It's a difficult set of questions for us. It's difficult to bring it out into the open. Um, but that's what we're hoping to do today. And we're going to manage this panel as a conversation among the three of us and try to open it up to you all as quickly as possible for Q&A, because. This is for you. We want to know what questions you have, what concerns you have, um, what thoughts that you might have about what we should be doing going forward, both as members of the judiciary, then as investigative journalists who help to uncover these events, and obviously as uh, your law school faculty and administration. So. The first question that I'm going to put to the panelists is an obvious one, but one that hovers over the entire area, which is, how serious is the problem? And that, of course, will require us to focus on what exactly is the problem that we're talking about. Um, Me Too implies that we're talking about sexual harassment, and we are. But what is the problem? And then is there? are there data, are there empirical Uh, studies out there that can give us a glimpse of how serious it is. So I'm going to turn it to you guys.
2: Okay. Um, So I just want to start by saying I am really happy to be here to talk about this. As Anne says, these are difficult questions, but I think it's an incredibly important conversation to have. So thank you for having me. Um, I also do want to just separately thank Risa for that lovely introduction and ask her if she would mind following me around for the rest of my career (laughs) and giving that introduction. Um, I I, I think this is a really important issue. I also, just at the very beginning, want to say I feel like a special kinship with your particular sort of law school classes around this question, kind of your micro generation, because the uh, um, Hill uh, Thomas hearings were the year I graduated from law school. And I re- so it was also right at the start of my legal career, as, as some of these questions are coming forward or, or coming to the surface, I guess, now at the beginning of your careers. And I remember how deeply affecting that was, um, destabilizing in some ways, just you know, having committed so much to this profession and having so lionized the federal courts and the Supreme Court, and then to have these questions raised about the institutions, the profession, the law, in this very vivid way was deeply upsetting to me. And I don't want to project my own issues onto all of you. um, And I know people experience these things differently. But I would not be surprised if some of you were having a bit of a difficult time with this. And, um, you know, my heart goes out to you. And I, I, am for that reason also just very happy to be able to talk to you about this. So, I want to turn to Anne's questions, um, sort of right right away, I guess. Um, in terms of sort of what is the problem we are talking about, I think our focus here is about sexual, on sexual harassment and sexual abuse, and there are good and appropriate reasons to focus there. I mean, this is a conversation that is long overdue. Um, And I think this is a distinctive form of misconduct in the workplace that leaves a distinctive mark and causes distinctive injuries. I think it is a form of misconduct that is maybe especially hard to report for various reasons. So it is hard. It raises special problems in terms of how to address it. Um, I think it has. Obviously a disproportionate effect on women and not just in terms of the immediate injuries, but the implications for women's full access to this profession and their ability to thrive in it. So it's it's a vitally important question. I Also think though that in focusing on sexual harassment and abuse it is valuable to widen the lens a little bit and think about workplace abuse more generally. Um, I think it is hard to cabin them entirely, that there are ways in which they're interrelated. I mean, most obviously they are both a manifestation of the same thing. They're both an abuse of power, and that ought to be bad in all of its manifestations. That's just, it's wildly inappropriate for any judge to abuse power over staff, and it really, that is true whatever the particular form it takes. And I also think that they are related in a different way, which is that if you have a workplace that runs on abuse, even in the general sense, where people are being demeaned and debased and taught that they are not deserving of equal respect in that workplace, you have created the conditions in which sexual harassment and sexual abuse can thrive. And so if you care about one, it sort of behooves you to care about the other also. So. When I think about what is the problem, I think about it in that more global sense as well, which is in some ways fortunate, because the one little bit of statistical information I have for you is on that broader question, inappropriate conduct by judges in their chambers. Um, And I know one other just quick caveat is I know our focus today is on the clerkship judge-clerkship relationship. when it comes to me too and the judiciary, that's not the whole problem and although it may be hard for you to believe there are people with even less power than law clerks in this system and uh, I, I want to focus on the judge judges and their kind of personal staffs, but there are other problems out there um, with other kinds of court personnel, and we, we are trying to take all of that very seriously too. But when it comes to judges and staffs, one of the things that the Fourth Circuit has done now in light of Sort of recent events, um, we did finally, for the first time, a kind of thoroughgoing survey where we went back five years and we did an anonymous survey of clerks and former, current clerks and all former law clerks, district court and appellate. And we actually got a really high level of response. We were very happy about that. Um, We were less happy about some of the findings and I, I, I neither have really detailed. Bre- I don't have detailed breakdowns, and this is all still confidential. It, it will become more public soon. Um, but our numbers on, you know, have you experienced inappropriate workplace behavior by a judge in chambers were not good. Um, they were higher than any of us would have expected, and if you do, if you are prepared to define the problem at that level of generality it is i think it is fair to say it is this is not one or two bad apples this is something more endemic than that
3: So I also want Risa to follow me around, and so that's going to be problematic. Uh, Pam and I will sort that out. Um, I just want to um, thank the Feminist Legal Forum and UVA and uh, this amazing panel uh, for having me to talk about this. Um, And I think I'm going to... just just add a, a gloss to what um, Judge Harris just said, which is, which is, you know, one of the most definitive studies that was done about this was done by uh, Joan Biskupic last year uh, at CNN, and she tried to mash all of the complaints uh, over a 10-year uh, period in the federal judiciary, and she sort of looked at 5,000 complaints, and we were trying to read together um, what the data showed, and the data showed virtually nothing, uh, because everything was con- confidential. Uh, Joan Biskupic in her reporting literally had to break it down by which were the one-page complaints, the three-page complaints, and the seven-page complaints from which you could try to maybe impute that there was a seriousness, you know, that that, that was measured in page numbers. Uh, but almost everything uh, uh, was not acted on. I mean her, her ultimate conclusion was of uh, these 5,000 disciplinary complaints over a 10-year period, uh, there were no no more than three per year that uh, were remediated uh, at the judiciary. So most of them either disappeared or the judge resigned, and it was never resolved. Uh, So we don't actually know. And it's entirely possible somebody just didn't like a judge's socks, and they're just utterly trivial complaints. It's also possible that in those three-page documents, there are very, very serious allegations that did not um, get addressed. And I think her takeaway, and one of the reasons That Chief Justice Roberts has now dedicated his State of the Judiciary speech, not one, but two years, uh, in a row to how, uh, particularly women, uh, are treated, uh, when they work on the, uh, Article 3, uh, uh, in the Article 3 branch is because there's just no good data. Uh, We don't know because judges judging judges was never a great uh, system and then it's just too easy uh, uh, to cover up uh, bad conduct. I think uh, one of the things we're going to have to figure out is how to even sort the big sort of inchoate pile of sludge that may be trivial, may be serious, and then we can begin to think about how serious the problem is. Uh, I agree uh, with Pam that any problem, particularly if it involves uh, sexual misconduct or harassment or bullying, is too much. Um, and I think that the the only other thing I would add, having reported on this, um, I sometimes joke that I now minor in Me Too. Uh, I major in the Supreme Court, but I just have written so much uh, about Me Too, uh, both at law school and the judiciary, is that these are, I, I think as both Pam and Anne said, First and foremost, power problems. They're not sex problems. It's a massive mistake to think about these as sex problems, although, let me tell you, that's how you get clicks. Um, But uh, above and beyond the fact that these are power problems, these are problems of closed systems, of closed systems in which the payoff for keeping a secret, uh, the payoff for complicity, whether you are a victim or a bystander, and that's its own extraordinary story here because, you know, Anne is copying to have maybe, I don't know, sort of being a bystander, right? And I think my real takeaway is that there, at least in the Kaczynski context, there are hundreds of bystanders. Um, What is it that keeps hundreds of people uh, from stepping forward, I think, is an entirely different question in some sense from the question of what keeps victims Uh, from stepping forward. And I think that the answer in both contexts, while it's complicated, uh, is that these are closed systems in which it is absolutely not worth risking coming forward and saying what is true. And I think that's why, at least uh, in in the Kaczynski context, people were keeping secrets for 25 years years. So one thing we have to think about is what is it about these systems? And it's not all that different from the casting couch. It's not all that different from the Harvey Weinstein problem. It's not all that different from the other uh, Me Too stories we hear. But I think if you think about the kinds of people who ultimately come forward in the Hollywood context, it's you know extraordinarily powerful or relatively powerful uh, and successful people who can still salv- salvage their careers not the people uh, at the, you know, who are sweeping uh, uh, the offices, although I am sure uh, they are egregious victims too. And by the same token, I think the folks who come forward in the Me Too in the judiciary context are people like you know, tenured, tenured uh, uh, faculty or uh, sitting judges who are willing to come forward, or journalists uh, who are 25 years into their career. That's so profoundly wrong way to solve this problem. You can't have zero skin left in the game before you come forward and begin to talk. So I think we really have to think about this as not just a power problem, but also a closed systems problem.
2: Two things real quick. Um, So one is that it does occur to me as a representative of of the federal judiciary, I I do want to stress that um, I, I, I think that this is a problem and it is a systemic problem. At the, two things can be true though. Most federal judges um, are wonderful bosses. I, I don't want there to be any mistake about that. I don't want to break anyone's spirit. I don't want you people writing off clerking, right? Most put 10 random federal judges in a room, mm-hmm. you're going to get 10 great bosses, 10 amazing experiences clerking for them. Your year, they wouldn't dream of abusing their authority. Your year in chambers would be enormously. Um, Uh, it would be a wonderful experience. You would learn a ton and then you would have this judge in your corner for the rest of your career. Most judges, it's going to be fine. It's going to be more than fine. It's going to be amazing. But the problem is, right, that that's not enough. It can't be enough that most judges are good actors. You need structures in place that will protect you from the bad actors. Um, And inevitably, there are always bad actors, and you need, I think, a level of kind of cultural and attitudinal change that will make that possible. And this goes to what Dahlia is talking about, about this being a closed system. I will tell you that from the inside, it feels that way, too. It really does. Um, There is a deeply entrenched part of kind of judicial culture, the judicial ethos that is, it goes something like this, that how judges hire their staff, and how they deal with their staff is their business. And it's nobody else's business. And it takes place in private, sometimes in physical isolation. Judges are widely dispersed. They don't. I don't sit in a courthouse. Nobody knows what's going on in my office. Um, so there is physical isolation, but there's cultural isolation too. And you have not, most of you, some of you probably have interned. Um, Many of you have not worked for judges yet, but you probably get some feel of this just from the hiring process, right? It's crazy. It looks nothing like a professional legal hiring process. I've never seen anything like it. because um, it, it wasn't really quite that bad when I was applying for clerkships. sort of my first recent experience with it has been on this end. and I it's, you know, nobody would mistake that from a professional process and that you can't get judges to agree on a plan. Like why would I agree? Why do I care what anyone else is doing? This is my fiefdom. I run it the way I want to run it. That is a prerogative of my job. And There's no accountability, and there is no transparency, right? You people have no idea what's going on when we make hiring decisions. We don't even answer letters. Like, people send us packets, and we don't send anything back. It just goes into a black hole. It's the craziest thing. So it feels like a closed system even from the inside, and I agree with Dahlia that um, even just at that, that part of the system, if we can't get to a point where there's a little bit more transparency, a little bit more accountability, and a, sort of a willingness on the part of judges to believe that their employment practices are somebody's business besides their own, this is going to be very difficult.
1: So let's open the closed system a little bit. Um, I think it might be interesting for all of us to hear a a bit from both of you about the way in which you conceive of the judge-clerk relationship. And again, Pam, maybe you wouldn't mind going first on that uh, front. uh, I, I take it it's nobody's business. But since you're here, you're going <laughs> to be willing. You're <laughs> going to be willing to share with us. You know, just how do you conceive of the relationship between the judge and the law clerk? Um, did you get some training um, into how to manage that relationship? Um, did you come up with it based on your? Own experiences, clerking, and and so on and so forth, and then for Dahlia, the follow up question would be, um, you know, both what was your experience clerking? How did your judge manage the the relationship, and was it valuable? And for precisely what reason was it valuable?
2: Um, I will answer the easiest question first. There is no training when you become a judge on how to manage a staff, um, and and this is. And I I hope we can sort of circle back to this when we think about how to change things. But it is sort of striking to me, in light of everything that has come out recently, that judge as employer um, is not part of the judicial role that anyone focuses on at any point of the process, not in the selection process um, for candidates, not in the confirmation process not in the training process and not in any of the other stuff that goes on once you become a judge. It's just not on the radar screen. Um, So no, you do it yourself. And in fact, one of the most haunting things that I think that came out of the Kaczynski situation was that someone went back and found some of the documents around his confirmation. And and a, a former employee had written Um, I think unbidden to the committee saying he's an abusive boss, and it it didn't matter. That's just not a question anybody asks, or they certainly weren't asking it then. Um, There's no signaling that that's an important part of the role. So the way I think about it, and some of you, if you are at the ACS convention, you've heard me give my sort of hard-ass version of this speech, which is um, you know, it's an employment relationship. It is a professional employment relationship and I want students to come in understanding that. Like, this is not a graduate seminar. This is not about being like besties and, you know, (laughs) putting on our pajamas and trading our intuitions about the law. This is a law office. Like, we're doing serious and important work. You have to come in, work hard, get it right. Um, It's an employment relationship. So that can in part be kind of a mean conversation to have. But The thing I really want to impress upon you is there's a lot of protection in that, too. Um, It is a formal employment relationship. I bring to bear regular professional norms in the office. And those actually offer, I think, the promise, at least, of a decent workplace. Um, And I think you should, I I know a lot of judges like to say, I think of my law clerks as family. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is often an incredibly well-intended way of framing it. What they're all they're trying to say is, "I'm nice and I care about people and I will care about you." And of course, that is a lovely message. But I think that that is a framing of the relationship that deserves a little bit of uh, thought, because you know it's not a family. Um, you actually, you're supposed to be on your best behavior. Um, you don't have to love each other no matter what. There is no code of privacy. Like it, it's, well, there is a code of privacy, but not like there is in a family. Um, it's, it's, it, is, it is not a family. And, and I think that uh, you are entitled Work for people who don't treat you like family. I I know that can seem like a funny thing to say, but it really is different. You're entitled to a level, a a kind of, a set of boundaries that don't pertain in a family, and you're entitled to a level of formality that you don't get in a family, and um, it's. I don't want to sound. I mean, I, I hope I don't sound like I am saying I don't care about my law clerks. I care so much about my law clerks. And at the end of the year, I think of them as you know, very, very good professional friends. I have very, very warm relationships with my law clerks. But it's an employment relationship. And, and my employees deserve to be treated with respect and to feel valued and to feel that they um, are held in equal regard. And and that that all goes along with a good professional employment relationship. And that's how I think about it.
3: Um, Yeah, I always, uh, it's funny because when I talk to judges about this, I unerringly hear you know it's a family, it's a family, and why do you want to intrude? And I'm like, you know, read a little Dostoevsky, right? Read Tolstoy, like, families like keep really crazy secrets, and that's not um, the benchmark of you know healthy and open professional relationships. Um, and you know, I, I, I hesitate a little bit to only talk about Judge Kaczynski because I think a huge part of the problem we've had is that we think, like, well, we solved that problem, uh, so then there's no problems left. And I think it's useful to use it as a Template, a very extreme template of you know other lesser uh, misconduct, and one of the things that is so interesting is that you know the way he treated his clerks and kind of reaffirmed this notion of family was they didn't have court email addresses, you know, they were not allowed to socialize with any of the other law clerks for any other chambers. Uh, They were almost entirely cut off uh, socially from any other network uh, other than this family and constantly sort of hearing reinforced, like, you don't need to be friends with those people. You don't need to get drinks with those people. Like, when you get drinks with people, it's with this chambers. And you can sort of see how that's like quickly becoming a lifetime television for women movie, right? Like, that that's like every abusive family ever, but I do think that it is a useful sort of model of of, of the messaging that gets out there. Um, you know, we're going to keep each other secrets. He had them sign these extraordinary uh, confidentiality documents, which are not right. uh, the model, and which I think is one of the places that the judiciary has really quickly uh, torqued and fixed. Uh, and nobody is allowed anymore to be told to keep secrets if there is an employment uh, misconduct problem. So that's one of the first thing uh, that the judiciary fixed. I-, I guess I would just say, Anne, in response to your question, I, I loved my clerkship. I clerked for one of the 10 judges You know, that you're describing truly one of the like last of the great uh, you know gentlemen and and um, who did I think in every way that you're describing build really good lawyers uh, but also had us over to dinner and also had us you know uh, 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 all of our uh, interests at heart but I think that I was not, and I think this is worth talking about, in any way sort of at a launch pad clerkship where all I was thinking about was, I, am I in a pipeline to get the next clerkship in which I have to endure anything that happens because this is my only uh, shot to the next place in the pipeline? And I think, just to go back to something that Ann said, I think it's incredibly, worth flagging here that there is something so pernicious about a law school system where you arrive and you are told, and this I don't think is as endemic at UVA, but we certainly see it at other schools, where you are essentially given the message that, whose small section you're in the first week will determine which parties you go to which will determine which professor you uh, uh, then have a relationship which will determine whether you go to a feeder judge which will determine whether you go to the court which will you know we, I think that the binary you get into and we can sort of joke about it but it's not funny because it's deeply reinforced um, by your colleagues and by sometimes by faculty and you get very quickly into a binary Where you're a one L two weeks into school making decisions that in your head, the decision tree is endure this or like eat from dumpsters. That's it. (laughs) That's the only, you know, in the in your heads. And I think that one of the places that law school sort of, and and this is like all due respect to, to, to law school, but one of the things we're learning in our reporting is that if you don't constantly reinforce the message that whatever you're hearing. It doesn't mean do anything you have to do. Either for a professor or for you know your first judge or for your second judge because the alternative is your life is over and I just think that that one of the things that is really toxic is that we say that and we say it and we say it and somehow it doesn't always register and nobody by the way because you're a woman should forego like all the opportunities that you would get if you endured that as a man so that's problematic right that people who who Take themselves off the launch pad because of gender or race or disability. It's its own problem. But I do think that one of the things that made my clerkship so utterly lovely was I sort of backed into it. I didn't want it, it kind of found me and I had no reason to believe that I was ever going to clerk again. It was awesome and I was done. And so I didn't ever have this absolutely looming sense that if I made one misstep, if I told one secret, if one one thing went wrong in chambers uh, uh, that my whole life was at stake. And so I think, you know, and I am this guy. I understand I'm a totally binary thinker myself. And so I understand, like, if you're, think this way like there's a reason you gravitate to law school because I think this way but I just think we have to start to disassemble the narrative that you know something is a no-brainer or something is a golden ticket because it's just too easy to keep defaulting from one abusive situation into another uh, and just think well everybody does it it must be okay.
1: So we were talking before among uh, ourselves. And and I was so glad that Pam brought up the family metaphor. And I'm just going to add a couple of additional thoughts about it. Um, Both of my clerkships were absolutely fantastic experiences. And neither of them was managed along family lines. And the funny part was that when I was a youngster, I felt like I was missing something, like my judges didn't treat us like families while we were working for them it wasn't about brunch or besties it was about getting work done and getting it done really well and and you know having us participate in the creation of these judicial work products and really helping us learn and and thrive but I I, I kept thinking you know where's the family piece of this you know like why aren't they having me over for dinner all the time or where's the brunch you know and and it's in later years I've realized it's precisely because both of the were really mindful about the professional boundaries and maintaining the professional boundaries that the experiences were so uh, really, really splendid and special for me. They were also really lovely people. They were kind and decent. And they were in your corner for the rest of your life. But while you were working, they didn't think this was family. So that that was one thing that was interesting. Um, the other thing, of course, and I won't go on at great length about this, is that feminism has developed a fairly robust critique of family and the conventions that structure the nuclear family and the ways in which those conventions have been particularly oppressive for women. And so again, one has to worry about the family metaphor uh, for for, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, and, And so I'm glad to hear that we're starting to think about this. I hear what Pam is saying. I think most judges, when they say that, mean to say, uh, this is a friendly place. I'm going to be your friend for life. On the other hand, there's some real problems with buying into that metaphor and applying it in any kind of literal way. Um, We've already started to touch on the next set of questions that I wanted to get into, but I, I, I do want to uh, dig in a little bit deeper. And so to the extent that we're talking about sexual harassment and other kinds of bullying that that ju- judges might in, engage in in the workplace with respect to clerks or other employees, um, this is misconduct, no doubt about it. But I want to think about the implications. Why is it so serious, and who is it serious for? Um, Obviously, we think this can be a serious problem for the clerk or the employee. Is it more serious for female uh, clerks than it is for male clerks, the, the, the presence of this kind of misconduct? Is it a problem for the judiciary, for judges as a whole? Um, does the fact that a judge engages in this kind of conduct, does that suggest that the judge is unfit? for office, or should it be part of the discussion? So I wanted to sort of throw those questions out and ask you to think about them a little bit more deeply than we have. Uh,
3: I I mean, (laughs) I, I, I can't, you can't. Essentialize and say it's worse for women. Certainly, I think um, you know we, we, we have greater numbers of women who are seeing something that looks like some version of uh, sexual harassment. But I, one thing we've learned reporting this out is that there are a lot of men who've suffered horrifying uh, abuse uh, of all sorts, including uh, uh, sexual abuse at the hands of their judges. So I think it, it and I also think um, just to, to to pull a little bit on the family analogy, I think the other thing that's really interesting about this conversation is that, that, that law students and later law clerks lived in, in this funny interstices uh, between childhood and adulthood. And one of the things that's been fascinating trying to think through uh, both with law faculty and then later uh, with judges is uh, some judges really think that their clerks are little kids. Uh, some clerks think that their clerks are fully realized completely autonomous uh, adults. And one one of the things that's very hard in this conversation, we again really see it when we start reporting on the Title IX problems at law schools. Is you know, should you be drinking with your clerks? Should you be drinking with your professors? Should you be Sloppy slurry drunk with your, uh, professors. Should you be sloppy slurry drunk, uh, with your judge? And, and, um, I think one of the things that is really complicated about that is that if you are a law student and you are of legal age, uh, if you are a law clerk and you are of legal age, there's some impulse to say, you know, good luck uh, there this doesn't make things freighted uh, but you know I think one of the things we've seen at so many sort of junctures of, of me too is that introducing alcohol introducing sort of complicated socializing uh, that 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 blurs boundaries really is difficult and I think that there's no I mean I'm curious what Pam thinks about this but I don't think there's a simple answer to like you never drink with your clerks you never drink with your faculty your clerks are adults your clerks are I think it's it's complicated and I think one of the reasons this relationship is not necessarily the same as some of the other me Too silos is because it's just a fuzzy inchoate thing in in between uh, uh, you know you can be a legal adult and still be in a very very complicated power situation uh, uh, so, so that's uh, one thing I think the other thing that is just so clear to me from talking to judges in the intervening you know year since me to, um, and Kaczynski became uh, my minor, um, is is that really I think a lot of judges just want the handbook. Like, they want the laminated note card that says, just tell me, can I tell my clerk she looks pretty? Can I hug my clerks? Can I ask my clerks to get my dry cleaning? Like, I need to know what the rules are. And, you know, we laugh because it's absurd, right? Like, don't grab your clerk's butt. Kind of easy, but there's a lot of stuff in the middle there that is just as complicated as the question of is your clerk, you know, a completely autonomous, fully functioning adult. And so I think you get these very, you know, in, inevitably when I talk, particularly to a generation that's like older than this panel of judges, they just want to know, like, tell me the stuff I can't do and until I know what that list is, all I hear is this roaring sound in my ears of, like, I'm going to get tagged for something. And all I did was ask her to get coffee. That's the only sort of lens. And I think one of the things that's very difficult is that judges are not used to anything other than, you know, sort of foggy cannons. And they really, I think, in the best This is not a bad thing to say like just give me the rule book. I'll memorize it. I'm a good judge But there isn't one and I think the fuzziness of this is really difficult That's interesting Um,
2: I had a lot of thoughts. So we we had just been talking about the drinking thing. Um, In the Fourth Circuit, it's a a lovely custom. When we go to Richmond, because we're all over the place, and we go to Richmond for a week at a time as a full court, Um, and a delightful custom on the Fourth Circuit is that most nights for dinner, two judges will go out with all of their law clerks. So it'll be eight law clerks, two judges, and we have dinner, and people do drink a little bit. Um, And I have never seen anyone get sloppy drunk or anything like that, but it did occur to me that... uh, you know, that's something that's probably worth giving some thought to. I will say, after that, most of the judges go home. And then the law clerks go out. And that's when they actually do get sloppy drunk. And I am not there for that part, which I think is well and good. And they should go out and have fun. Um, some judges you know, sometimes do participate in the after dinner, sloppy drunkenness. And so you know, that, that also is perhaps a piece of the tradition that we might want to th- look at it a little bit, just look at it a teeny bit harder. Um, but I, I this it goes with the thing where we're not a family. Like I actually think we spend so I spend so much time together with my clerks in Richmond, and I love it. It is a really really nice time for us. But I think it's incredibly important that they have some time sort of on their own with me not there. Like I'm not really supposed to be there for the whole thing, uh, and they need they need some time. Um, you know, the the give me a rule book thing I think is really interesting, and and. I I am, uh, the Fourth Circuit is about to stand up, but we can talk a little more about what the judiciary is doing. But Mm -hmm. the next step of this for the Fourth Circuit will be we are putting together a workplace conduct committee. And one thing we are really struggling with is this question of how much can we do in the way of bright line rules? Because it is always better if you have some bright line rules. And, and, and we will work toward that. And I think we can pull some together. We're going to do training for judges also, which will help judges answer for themselves some of these questions. And I think all of that is well and good. And the clearer you can be about it, the better. But I have something of a lack of patience for the judges who are running around saying, I just need to know what the rules are. Because you know some of them are relatively self-evident. And I really don't think we should have to write some of this stuff down for people and then judges are supposed to be, you're right, we live in like a fog of generalities, but this is what we do. We apply legal concepts to facts day in and day out. It's the whole damn job. And the idea that you suddenly you can't do that when the legal concept is don't abuse your employees, and now you've got a fact pattern, you're like, oh, I don't know, I'm at a loss. <laughs> like, this cannot be the answer, right? We're gonna, judges are going to have to do it, you know. Do a little more work, maybe, on this, Um, and so we we will we will try. We we need to try as a court system to make this as easy as possible for all judges. But at some level, judges are just going to have to step up and do the thinking work that goes along with you know. With being an employer and, and having authority over people and being careful about how you use it, I mean that is just a function of being a grown-up adult in the world. And I, I, have a, I'm, I am hearing it in my voice. I have just a marked lack of patience for people who won't take responsibility for what they do. Um, and in terms of, I'm, I am fast. I think there is the question of why all of this matters. I mean, it obviously matters to in the legal system. It obviously matters to the clerks and to the staff. Um, It's desperately important that they not be put in a position where people are abusing their authority over them. But if you think, as I do, that a central role of a judge and of the rule of law is that it is all about protecting against abuses of power um, and holding power accountable on behalf of people who have less power then it raises really interesting questions about whether there is room in that system for judges who don't know how to do that, um, who, who themselves are abusing power. I think it raises incredibly important questions, both in terms of appearance. Can people be confident mm-hmm. that the legal system is running the way it's supposed to? And in terms of substance, is can those judges make good decisions? Um, And and I I think those are very important questions that I I personally have only begun to wrestle with. And I think we have got to think about in a um, hard and careful way, because it at least raises a question. right? If you are behind chambers' doors, if you yourself are abusing power you have over other people, does that affect the degree to which you can do your job as a judge? I mean, I think it raises the question.
4: So
1: could you speak a little bit, Pam, about the proposals, proposed reforms that your court has been discussing and any other proposed reforms that you might know about? And then I have a separate question for Dahlia about the role of journalists in this space while we're waiting for reforms to take hold. Yes, and I i am um, taking out my notes because I don't want
2: to forget anything. So the, the first thing that's happened already is the Judicial Conference, which is the um, policy making body for the federal judiciary, is voting next month on adopting proposed changes to the code of conduct for federal judges which I think is a really important first step. And I'm actually kind of excited about this. The code of conduct until now has said literally nothing about judges as employers. It's not a chapter. Um, But now it does. Now it will require that judges treat chamber staff with civility and respect. And cognizable misconduct, this is part of the rules for judicial conduct proceedings, cognizable misconduct will now include unwanted, offensive, or abusive sexual conduct, and also abuse more generally, treating staff in a demonstrably egregious and hostile manner. It will specify that there can be no retaliation for reporting or alleging this kind of misconduct. It specifies, again, because we want to write everything down for our judges, they might not have figured this out. That applies to former employees as well as current employees. And it says not only that judges can't do this, but it is now um, a violation of the code of conduct if we tolerate it. And so failure to report or disclose information. This is the bystander question. Reasonably likely to constitute abuse or harassment is itself judicial misconduct. Um, so this would be a really big change. And I. it is possible that some of you are thinking, like, it's just words. It's just stuff written down. And I get that. But boy, there were not even words before, and I actually think that this kind don't don't write off um, the fact that this this kind of signaling can have some effect. It really can. I, I said at the beginning, like at no part until now, there was not there was not one one like slight signal that anybody cared how judges were running their chambers. It just wasn't part of the discussion. And to at least say, it matters, we're writing it down, we're paying attention to this, is at least a first step. Um, The administrative office of US courts has hired a judicial integrity officer, which I think is really important because this person will be a resource for filing complaints. Um, If you want to go outside your own circuit, if law clerks or staff are not comfortable going to the circuit executive or to a judge on the court and instead want to just get away from the circuit altogether, this will be another person they can report to. Um, The Fourth Circuit has already started doing some minor things for the... This is embarrassing. But for the first time this year, as part of our law clerk orientation, Mm -hmm. we talked to law clerks about this. We had never done that before. But we talked to them about it. We told them we were committed to not letting this happen. We told them who to report to. Um, We at least covered it in law clerk orientation. We hired a workplace conduct coordinator who was going to train all Fourth Circuit judges in June on workplace conduct issues, including bystander training. Um, We did a survey. We are doing an exit interview for the first time this summer. We're starting an exit interview process in the hopes that law clerks who are walking out the door um, might be slightly more comfortable uh, reporting information, although I I still think there's a lot to work out there. Um, We're starting this committee, which will You know, we think of this only as very, very first steps. And we're starting a committee, once we have the new Judicial Code of Conduct, to talk about implementing that in our circuit. And it will be a representative committee. And I'm not allowed to say anything for sure about who will be on it. But I will just say that I have a high degree of confidence that it will, in fact, include lots of former clerks, both district court and appellate clerks, which I think is really important. So that's where we are now. Um, and I guess I, I feel like I'm saying a lot of things that might make this sound a, a bit bleak, but I think there are a lot of judges out there who actually are really committed mm-hmm. to to fixing this, addressing it. I, we, none of us thinks we'll fix it tomorrow, but addressing it, people of really good faith and goodwill who who are uh, slightly devastated to find themselves holding the bag and being part of a problem like this, and really, really committed to making changes. And one thing, when we get to the question and answers, I'm just going to alert you right now that one of my questions for you all is going to be th- this question of reporting, law clerk reporting. Um, I mean, I personally think that cannot be our plan A, that we'd better not have an enforcement system that turns in any critical way on law clerks being prepared to step up and blow the whistle on judges. You know, it's on us. We've got to fix this. And we can't be asking our law clerks to fix it for us. But that said, I think we need to try to make reporting as feasible as humanly possible for law clerks. And I am really interested in your views on how to do that.
1: So I want to ask one more question and, and focus on Dahlia's work. Um, and the role that that she and that other journalists play in this space. Um, We know that journalists have been incredibly important in the Me Too movement generally, and that is true when it comes to Me Too and the judiciary. And one of the most moving and disturbing essays that I read was an essay that Dahlia wrote. when I say disturbing, it it, it caused a great deal of personal distress for me because I shared at least some of the anguish that she was revealing there. She uh, published an essay in Slate that included some recollections of interactions with Judge Kaczynski over the years and you know, just sort of raise the question of what she should have been doing um, throughout that time. Um, And with that in mind, I guess I want to be thinking about the role that journalists play and the role that informal sanctions or informal process, if you will, might play um, in this uh, space with respect to this problem. both before the needed reforms are developed and take place, but but then after, also, because we have reason to worry that it will be difficult for, for law clerks, not to mention other employees, to step up and, and make reports. So I, I, th- this is an awfully personal question for you, Dahlia. But I, I've long wanted to ask you the question of what was in your mind and, and what were you thinking when you wrote that essay? Um, and then how much process do you think we need to provide before we publish that kind of information?
3: Um, I I would not have written that piece, right? That piece was written 20 years ago, and I sat on it. Um, I I only wrote it um, after Heidi Bond and Emily Murphy formally came forward. Um, One of the things that I am learning, I'd be really curious to hear what you uh, think of this, Anne, one of the really fascinating things I've learned uh, is that there's this rule of three um, and that you need three accusers um, to be uh, a credible and serious uh Story, um, and that's crazy. Uh, Kitty McKinnon published an amazing uh, body of research uh, about a year ago where she talked about um, Title IX accusations, and she said, like, literally, you needed three accusers. Uh, for every accused in order to be taken seriously. And I, you know, for years I used to say, um, you know, as long as it was just O'Connor and Ginsburg on the court, every single term the two of them sat together. Somebody called Ginsburg O'Connor, somebody called O'Connor Ginsburg at oral argument, so much so that they had t-shirts that said, I'm Sandra, she's Ruth, I'm Ruth, she's Sandra, right? Because it was ridiculous, and as soon as the third comes on that ends. As soon that it has never happened again. As I've I've watched the court, that as soon as there are three women on the court, like it's it's gone. And by the way, all the data on corporate boards shows the exact same thing. As soon as you have a third woman on a corporate board, they all talk. They're all real, they're all fully, you know, autonomous individuals. So it's amazing, like, if you just sit back and reflect on what it means to be three, but at least in the Kaczynski context, I was three. And And there was this summer when it was Debbie Ramirez and um, uh, uh, Dr. Blasey Ford. I think that there was a sense in the media that if there was a three and she wasn't brought by Michael Avenatti, um, there might have been, you know, this might have been a different story. But I absolutely believe that that is the magic number, and I think that's hugely problematic for obvious reasons. But I was three. And I would not have written that piece, by the way, after Heidi and Emily stuck their necks out had Alex Kaczynski the next day said, you're right, I'm wrong. I apologize. But he didn't. He doubled down. And he trivialized Heidi. I didn't know either of them. uh, And then I had to write. So I want to just. Put out there what it means to sort of keep a secret for 25 years, to only write when you're the third person, to only write when there's nothing that can happen to me in my career. Um, I will also say, since you asked a personal question, I will give you the personal answer, which is a week after uh, that story was fact checked and fact checked, and you know we literally ran it through the wood chipper 72 times, uh, and and at. I still uh, was standing outside the urgent care clinic thinking I was having a heart attack when that piece went up because I thought I'd ruin my life. Becca Heller, um, the head of IRAP, famously says, "Uh, I just did not want this to be the first line of my obituary. I did not want the first line of my obituary to be like died bringing down Alex Kaczynski. Um, I think it still might be, but I hope not. Um, He stepped down after. Two days after, so in some sense, it worked, right? In some sense, though, it's astounding that three women had to, like, get out that far ahead of, like, any norm of, you know, hundreds of people did not. Um, I think the only other thing, um, I want to say about this is that, that, that piece in hindsight was just a galactic error on my part, insofar as I, conflated two stories. And there was one story that was about complicity. There was one story about the, as I'm going to keep saying, hundreds of us who did nothing. And how all of us, and I think this is another, you know, in the Me Too industrial complex, complex, a huge problem. When we come forward, and you will hear this even about Justin Fairfax last week, we come forward because we want to protect the women who are coming after us. That's the, that is the purposive story told. If it was just me, right, I would never have told. I can't abide the idea that Emily Murphy experienced suffering, Heidi Bond experienced suffering, Leah Lippman experienced suffering, Kathy Koo experienced suffering because I didn't do the right thing. That's not right. It's not right that in addition to the burden of reporting, we also carry around the burden of protecting all the women who come after. And I don't know the answer to that. But the the piece was a mistake, because I think there is a long, sober, serious conversation that we have to have about complicity. I think there is a serious and sober conversation about bystanders who do nothing and who say, well, you know," as a, a law school person, I just stopped sending clerks to Alex Kaczynski. So the problem, as far as I'm concerned, was over. Watching other generations of clerks, uh, you know, and thinking that wasn't a problem. I wish I had written a different piece because that piece got coded in the press and in the world as a Me Too piece, as me Me Tooing Alex Kaczynski. That was not what that piece was. That piece was me saying, as a profession, it is disgraceful that we (laughs) allow that to happen to each other and to generations of women. And the piece in some profound way, now I feel like I'm just emoting, I'm like saying all this for the first time, but I I guess I will say, in a profound way, it let everybody off the hook. Everybody was able to say, well, I don't have to do anything now (laughs) because Daya did it. And more urgently, we had, and I'm sorry to say this, an enormous amount of federal judges say, I don't have to do anything because the problem's over. And that, for me, is where journalism can't be doing the work of Me Too. Because the problem isn't over when somebody steps forward, and the system isn't fixed when one person steps down.
1: So so I want to follow up on that, if I could, which is to say that, um, at least for this reader, you've misunderstood the impact of the piece. Because I didn't read it as another Me Too piece only. I did see that as being part of it. But where it hit me was, the complicity piece of it and thinking about my own role as a law professor and my complicity in not sharing information with students when I have information and the the extent to which law schools should be putting in place some kind of institutional structures that when when we learn that this kind of abuse is taking place or we suspect, which we did, I mean, uh, I did not know that Alex Kaczynski was that kind of a serial predator, but there certainly was information available to me based on things that he'd done that that had been publicized that gave me cause for concern. So I read the piece. The reason I mentioned just now that why that piece hit me so hard was because it made me think about my, my own complicity and my own role or my potential complicity in the future going forward. You know, what do we do as law professors, as law faculty to to protect all of you. And I'm immediately suggesting that you all need protection and you're fully formed adults and maybe you don't need protection, but you need information and and we need to be honest and candid with you about what we know. So I guess that this exchange has been incredibly useful for me, but I, I hope that you hear me when I say, I did not read it simply as another Me Too piece. I read it as a call to we've got to do something so that we cease being accomplices. We, the law faculty, cease being accomplices um, in this important endeavor. Um, so I have tons more questions, as you both know. But the time is getting late. And I did want to at least give the audience an opportunity to ask a question or two. So questions?
4: Yeah, Jesse. So I, I have kind of an, um, it's a question that Also, the sort of mandatory reporting function that that the bystander role gives to judges. Um, I've been sexually harassed in ten of the twelve jobs and internships that I've had, and my um, my typical go-to to find out what my resources were and to get some perspective on it was a trusted person in authority um, who knew something about access to those systems. So if I were working for a judge, and I had a somewhat of a trusting relationship with another judge in the same circuit, I would probably go to that other judge to find out, you know, is this, you know, what are my options? Is this crazy? You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I wonder how that kind of informal consultation um Is it still possible for that kind of thing
1: to happen when you you know, if
2: you know that that judge is sort of a mandatory reporter? Yeah, that is a really good question. And I know, in fact, it's sort of addressed somewhere in this binder. But I'm not going to (laughs) find it fast enough to give you the information. So that has occurred to someone in the writing of this. Um, And the rule is going to be something like that that other judges are supposed to adhere to promises of confidentiality. It's I think it's sort of like with a lot of kind of mandatory reporting relationships. Like unless there's sort, you know, it's so bad that they can't basically. Like unless it's there's like a threat to. I I don't remember the particular language. Those judges are supposed to be able to promise confidentiality and keep those promises except in extreme circumstances. It's something like that. Um, But I have to say, some of this, I think, is not fully operationalized yet. And so this is something we... People are going to be working on this language. Do you have thoughts about... I mean, I'm genuinely curious that this... confidentiality. Right, right. Um, I mean I guess one thought I, I have and I'm really I'm just I would really be interested in what you all think is that um, it might be more important to have judges reporting than it is to have them be potential safe harbors for other law clerks only because uh, my guess is not that many law clerks are going to feel comfortable going to other judges in the first place. And so we're, if we have to err on one side or the other, we might do better with judges reporting than judges being the safe harbors. But that's just based on kind of a instinct that most of my law clerks, if they had an issue with me, would probably be pretty disinclined to go to one of my colleagues to talk it through. But I, but I don't know. But what do you guys think?
1: That's a great
2: Yeah, okay, well, I'll I'll, I'll write down the question at least. Okay.
4: (laughs) Yes. Uh, So
5: I was recently hired by a female judge, and I kind of breathed a sigh of relief over an anxiety I didn't even realize I had. And over time, I've been thinking kind of about how a portion of the solution is parity in the judiciary. Not to say that women cannot necessarily be abusive bosses. But that that would men is certainly something that gave me more anxiety. But when we're in a space where we have President Trump only nominating about 28% um, of female judges and even um, less to federal positions, and these are lifetime positions. Um, I'm starting to realize that it's going to be, at this rate, decades before we come anywhere close to parity. And that problem is mimicked in. Larger law firms and as partners as well. And so, I'm curious if you have kind of any thoughts on parity and how that's a part of the solution. How do we achieve parity within you know, a
3: reasonable period of time? Uh, it's a great question. You're, everything you're articulating is a legitimate worry. Um, I I will say, you know, one of the the nice things when I had to go back and get my co-clerks from 1997 um, to all go on the record with our fact checker, uh, all men, all men who all remembered and all remembered coming forward to me and saying in 1996, oh, this was hanky. So I I was really um, quite stunned even then that they were... Uh, they had initiated this with me. Um, and then the very last episode, again, uh, with Judge Kaczynski happened because a male colleague saw something across a room at a cocktail party and texted me and said, what the hell? <laughs> you know, um, and, 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 and one of the stories that, that I reported recently um, that involved um, some inappropriate conduct, all three of the bystanders were men. So part of, I guess this is my way of saying, one of the things that I am really heartened by. And it doesn't answer your parody problem. Um, I was the only woman in my chambers uh, with a male judge. And my all my co-clerks immediately like rushed in to protect me. Um, and the most recent story that I reported, um, all of the people who rushed in to protect one of the accusers uh, were uh, men. And so part of me, and this is just me tilting at windmills to try to, um, sort of put a silver lining on on stats that are pretty grim, is that I think part of raising up a generation of men who are immediately apt to jump in and do something and report and support and go on the record is at least part of the solution for me. It doesn't change the fact that 90% of the judges are men, but I think having colleagues around you who are willing to name it and colleagues around you who are willing to support it, whether they're male or female, is really different uh, from you know anything that we saw before. And it's it seems like it's a, a, a you know grasping at straws. But I think that you know when I look at my sons uh, who are 13 and 15, uh, they are unbelievably deft at coming home and saying like, "You will not believe uh, what I saw in class." In a way that like my brothers couldn't have named that because they couldn't have identified it. Uh, so I think it's not a lot, but I think that there is a generation, particularly, of lawyers that is coming up where it is not uniquely the burden of women uh, to protect other women. And I think that's not inconsequential.
2: No, that's the best silver lining I can think of, too. Yep. Yep. I mean, from the judicial perspective, i I mean, there's there is a power hierarchy. There is a power disparity. Um, and and that that's not going away. what What I think is sort of laid on top of that is it's um, the right way to say this because I don't want to seem like I'm being critical of my colleagues at all, and i and I'm not letting myself off the hook either. But there is something about the culture around judges and I think law schools help to perpetuate this, that um, takes the power disparity and then gives the nod to exploiting it or taking advantage of it, right? It is what it is. It's not going away. But that doesn't mean you have to exploit it. And one of the reasons I talked about hiring at the beginning is I just think that it's incumbent on all judges, women, men, everybody, to think about what they do in the face of that power disparity, and whether they are um, taking advantage of it or doing everything they can to convey a different sentiment, which is, I get it, This is the power dynamic is what it is. But it doesn't mean that's just a normal employment relationship. You get treated with respect. Um, you are valued. And, and this is a professional relationship with some boundaries around it. And I do worry, I worry so much about the hiring process. I don't want to keep harping on that, but it is such a vivid manifestation of what happens when people don't do that. Um, it, 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 the, the power dynamic, the power disparity is there. But boy, that hiring process really plays it for all it's worth. And then it ends up, it's, it's, it's your first point of entree into this relationship. And what have you learned so far, that these are people who are prepared to like call you and say, I need to see you across the country tomorrow, and then I'm gonna give you an exploding offer, and you have 20 seconds to answer. Mm-hmm. And you know, it it's and so then you walk into the relationship already having having been conditioned to understand that these are people who will exploit the power they have over you. And I, I worry very much that um that judges without really thinking much about it, do things that aggravate this power imbalance in a really pernicious way and condition law clerks to expect less than they ought to out of an employment relationship. And I worry that that law schools sort of exacerbate that a little bit in the way they put judges on pedestals. And I, I'm like talking against my own interests here. <laughs> you can you should keep me on a pedestal, but those other judges, really. They, it, it, it's, not, it's, it's just not a healthy dynamic. Um, and so I don't know that that's an answer so much as just another description of the problem. But I think judges have some soul searching to do here. And I think that there are, again, a lot of really well-meaning judges who will do that were open to doing some of this introspection around um, what you do with this power imbalance. And I think it is aggravated when it comes to this particular employment relationship in some ways, both because it's got like a short-term and a long-term dimension. One of the things that aggravates it is that And I said this before, a good clerkship, a good judge, that judge is in your corner for the rest of your life. You are entitled, really, to be able to count on that judge forever. So there is a lot at stake. And so law clerks may feel that they have to suck up a lot of indignities because it's a lifelong um, relationship. But on the other hand, you're only there for a year. And I think that that also has a bad effect because law clerks think like, well, this is a terrible situation. For a real job, I'd walk out, but I can suck it up for a year. And so that combination of one year on the front end for a lifetime of benefits, I think, makes this job, uh, it's one of the things that makes the power dynamic in this job kind of uniquely vulnerable to abuse.
3: And maybe I would would just add one layer to that. And the dean should cover her ears. But I I think, in some ways, you know, law school. um, I was telling Pam yesterday. Imagine if we still ran med school the way we we ran med school. You know, like we're so in love with certain Langdalian, you know, educational tropes. We're so in love with this idea that law school, um, you know, is essentially a funnel to big law. It's essentially a funnel to a clerkship. We don't. And then law schools get rewarded for that, right? I mean, it's not as though law schools get massive rewards for um, uh, other drivers. And so as long as rankings, for instance, are, are part of the mix, as long as placements with judges matters a lot, then law school's incentives are going to be screwy. And I think that the more the profession changes, and it is changing, the more... Law schools need to really reimagine in profound ways what. Is the incentive to just driving people into certain um, places that are very vaunted, but are also A, not always realistic, B, you know, there's like a billion places you can clerk for, right? That Your life doesn't end if you don't clerk for Merrick Garland, but we, or Pam Harris, your life ends instantly right. if you don't clerk for Pam <laughs> Harris. Uh, let's like call a spade a spade. But I, I just think that there's not just sort of the reification of uh, judges. But I think in the absence of really carefully modeling, there are lots of great choices. There are amazing jobs out there. If you show up at law school and you just don't know, that centrifugal force is very, very, very strong. And I think that um, we, we just need to be really realistic about the fact that the profession doesn't necessarily need the things that the profession, you know, A, that are monetized, or B, that, that uh, the profession needed 100 years ago. And I think that that's really hard because at the end of the day, like one of the most small c conservative institutions on planet Earth is the law school. And so I think it's it's not just sort of judges not um, falling into sort of old habits of mind, which is problematic, but I think also just legal education and the sort of these deep deep troughs of you know we've always done it this way, therefore good. Um, And I think that, you know, I'm sure lots of you, like, have a very different, like, not as much screaming cold calling, not, not as much weeping, you know, from Socratic, like, contracts professors. It's changing, it is, but I think in some ways this is paradigmatic of what happens when the values don't map onto, you know, reality or actual values, if that makes sense.
5: My impression is that it's not outright retaliation that might be the problem It's the loss of, quote unquote, softer connections that you keep.
4: So from personal experience in reporting, you're missing out on being cited in publications. You lose letters of recommendation that you might have in this work that you've done. What protections are, lost goals are, is the
5: federal judiciary creating for people in these less um, obvious areas?
2: Well, I think this is, um, I will say, when, when judges sit around and talk about this, this is our biggest concern that we can say as much as we want no retaliating and we are i i personally am not do not have a strong concern that if a law clerk were to bring to someone's attention possible misconduct in the office the judge would fire the law clerk that is not what i am concerned about what i am concerned about is exactly what you were saying and i'm going to put it to you in sort of the best faith context possible it's a judge who Let's imagine some relative, you know, on the sliding scale of abuses. This is a relatively minor one, perhaps a misunderstanding, a good faith misunderstanding. I, you know, said I like. That's going to trivialize it, but you know, like a compliment about someone's physical appearance, the law clerk quite properly goes, let's say, to the circuit executive and says, "This thing happened. It made me uncomfortable." Circuit executive goes to the judge. The judge says, "Oh my God, I am so embarrassed. I apologize." Apologizes to the law clerk, and then never again really feels that comfortable with the law clerk. Right? That—that's all it is. It's not. No, he's not retaliating. He's not writing mean letters. It's just that the relationship doesn't quite repair. It's a really close relationship. A close working professional relationship, but it's a close relationship, and it doesn't repair. Is it? And that—that is the—that is the problem that we talk about all the time. How are we going to fix that? so all I have done is reframe the question for you, and I really this this is what I work this is what I am talking about when I say we can't have a system that depends on that law clerk going to the circuit executive because I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, part of the answer again is my like usual tough love, like well, judges need to pull themselves together and get comfortable. Mm-hmm. Like it's not that hard. You, it is possible to um, withstand a critique like that and not get defensive. And be comfortable and respect the law clerk who brought it to you. That is possible. And the first line of response has to be, that is what judges must do. And we must make that happen. But the idea that that can happen tomorrow and that law clerks will feel comfortable that that's the way it will play out, I think, is. I am very worried that we can't make it happen fast enough that law clerks will always feel comfortable doing that. and that is what I worry about. the kind of the the loss of a relationship, the opportunity cost kind of that's a big deal. One thing I think is that professors, I think good professors have some experience with this. Like you say something in class—I'm giving myself away. You say something in class; you thought it was funny. A student comes to you and says, "That was not funny." Don't say that again. Yeah. And like your first response is, "Oh my God, I'm a good guy." Like we, yeah. this is terrible. Why would you think that of me? Yeah. But you learn as a professor. This is so helpful. Like thank goodness this student. I first of all, I'm so sorry I put a student in a position to have to do that. But thank goodness the student came forward. This is how we learn. Um, And and, and it is possible to get past your defensive reaction and not have this be a problem. And we are going to try to train judges to do that. And I do think good law professors are really good at it. And so there are resources we can draw on here. So I don't want to give up and say, this will be a perpetual problem. I think it can be done. But there'll be a learning curve. And I am worried about the time in between.
3: I I wonder if it's a little bit, this is just me being an idiot. but. I wonder if there's some utility in starting to think about what if all three of your clerks came to you together and said, um, you know, X was said, we're all uncomfortable with it. And then it's not the one clerk. I'm just trying to sort of think of a way, because I, again, when I complained to my judge about Another judge, it, it meant the world that my, my um, co clerks came with me. And then it was never just about me going forward. And I just wonder if one of the things we can train ourselves to do is to, again, it's a bystander problem. And it, it requires bystanders to have the same buy in as victims, and don't get me started. But I think that um, if we could kind of begin to model, you know, when something happens, all three clerks all four clerks together come forward and say that actually makes all of us uncomfortable and then it's not the, the relationship to the extent that is broken it's broken with everyone but it's a, i think sort of spreading that risk around is one of the ways that you um, can begin to mitigate this like <laughs> once i stick my neck out and they all stand back they're going to get the jobs that i am losing and that's who nobody's going to do that
1: So it's really late. We'll take one more. The the questioner has withdrawn the question. Um, (laughs) Thank you all so much. But thank you, Dahlia. Thank you, Pam. This has been an incredibly rewarding conversation, and I hope it's one that will continue. Thank you.